Section 1 of My Life in the South. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeffrey Carr. My Life in the South by Jacob Stroyer. Chapter 1, Part 1. My father was born in Sierra Leone, Africa. Of his parents and his brothers and sisters I know nothing. I only remember that it was said his father's name was Moncoso, and his mother's Mongomo, which names are known only among the native Africans. He was brought from Africa when but a boy, and sold to old Colonel Dick Singleton, who owned a great many plantations in South Carolina. And when the old Colonel divided his property among his children, father fell to the second son, Colonel M. R. Singleton. Mother never was sold, but her parents were. They were owned by one Mr. Croft, who sold them and the rest of the slaves, with the plantation, to Colonel Dick Singleton, upon whose place mother was born. I was born on this extensive plantation, twenty-eight miles southeast of Columbia, South Carolina, in the year 1849. I belonged to Colonel M. R. Singleton, and was held in slavery up to the time of the Emancipation Proclamation issued by President Lincoln. THE CHILDREN My father had fifteen children, four boys and three girls by his first wife, and eight by his second. Their names were as follows. Of the boys, Tony, Azarine, Duke, and Dezine, of the girls, Violet, Priscilla, and Lydia. Those of his second wife were as follows. Footy, Embrus, Caleb, Mitchell, Cuffy, and Jacob, and of the girls, Catherine and Retta. Sandhill Days Colonel M. R. Singleton was like many other rich slave owners in the South, who had summer seats four, six, or eight miles from the plantation, where they carried the little negro boys and girls too small to work. Our summer seat, or the sandhill, as the slaves used to call it, was four miles from the plantation. Among the 465 slaves owned by the colonel, there was a great many children. If my readers had visited Colonel Singleton's plantation the last May, or the first of June, in the days of slavery, they would have seen three or four large plantation wagons loaded with little negroes of both sexes, of various complexions and conditions, who were being carried to the summer residence, and among them they would have found the author of this little work in his sandhill days. My readers would naturally ask, how many seasons these children were taken to the summer seats? I answer, until in the judgment of the overseer they were large enough to work. Then they were kept at the plantation. How were they fed? There were three or four women who were too old to work on the plantation, who were sent as nurses to the summer seats with the children. They did the cooking. The way in which the old women cooked for eighty, sometimes one hundred and fifty children, in my sandhill days was this. They had two or three large pots, which held about a bushel each, in which they used to cook corn flour, stirred with large wooden paddles. The food was dealt out with the paddles into each child's little wooden tray or tin pail, which was furnished by the parents according to their ability. With this corn flour, which the slaves called mush, each child used to get a gill of sour milk, brought daily from the plantation in a large wooden pail on the head of a boy or man. We children used to like the sour milk, or hard clabber, as it was called by the slaves. But that seldom changed diet, namely the mush, was hated worse than medicine. Our hatred was increased against the mush from the fact that they used to give us molasses to eat with it, instead of clabber. The hateful mixture made us anxious for Sundays to come, when our f mothers, fathers, sisters, and brothers would bring something from the plantation, which, however poor, we considered very nice, compared with what we had during the weekdays. Among the many desirable things our parents brought us, the most delightful was cowpiece, rice, and a piece of bacon, cooked together. The mixture was called by the slaves, Hopping John. THE STORY OF GILBERT 
A few large boys were sent yearly to the sandhill among the smaller ones as guides. At the time to which I am referring, there was one by the name of Gilbert, who used to go around with the smaller boys in the woods to gather bushes and sticks for the old women to cook our food with. Gilbert was a cruel boy. He used to strip his little fellow negroes while in the woods and whip them two or three times a week so that their backs were all scarred and threaten them with severer punishments if they told. The state of things had been going on for quite a while. As I was a favorite with Gilbert, I always managed to escape a whipping, with the promise of keeping the secret of the punishment of the rest, which I did. Not so much that I was afraid of Gilbert, as because I was always inclined to mind my own business. But finally, one day, Gilbert said to me, Jake, as he used to call me, You am a good boy, but I am going to whip you today, as I whipped them tutter boys. Of course I was required to strip off my only garment, which was an Osnaburg linen shirt, worn by both sexes of the Negro children in the summer. As I stood trembling before my merciless superior, who had a switch in his hand, thousands of thoughts went through my little mind as to how to get rid of the whipping. I finally fell upon a plan which I hoped would save me from the punishment that was near at hand. There were some carpenters in the woods some distance from us, hewing timber. They were far away, but it was a clear morning, so we could hear their voices and the sound of the axes. Having resolved in my mind what I would do, I commenced reluctantly to take off my shirt, at the same time pleading with Gilbert, who paid no attention to my prayer, but said, Jake, I is going to whip you today as I whip them tutter boys. Having satisfied myself that no mercy was to be found with Gilbert, I drew my shirt off and threw it over his head and bounded forward on a run in the direction of the sound of the carpenters. By the time he got from the entanglement of my garment, I had quite a little start of him. Between my starting point and the place where the carpenters were at work, I jumped over some bushes five or six feet high. Gilbert soon gained on me, and sometimes touched me with his hands, but as I had on nothing for him to hold to, he could not take hold of me. As I began to come in sight of the carpenters, Gilbert begged me not to go to them, for he knew that it would be bad for him, but as this was not a time for me to listen to his entreaties, I moved on faster. As I got near the carpenters, one of them ran and met me, into whose arms I jumped. The man into whose arms I ran was Uncle Benjamin, my mother's uncle. As he clasped me in his arms, he said, Breast of Lord, my son, what is the matter? But I was so exhausted that it was quite a while before I could tell him my trouble. When recovered from my breathless condition, I told him that Gilbert had been in the habit of stripping the boys and whipping them two or three times a week when he went into the woods and threatened them with greater punishment if they told. I said he had never whipped me before, but I was cautioned to keep the secret, which I had done up to this time. But he said he was going to whip me this morning, so I threw my shirt over his head and ran here for protection. Gilbert did not follow me after I got in sight of the carpenters, but sneaked away. Of course my body was all bruised and scratched by the bushes. Acting as a guide for Uncle Benjamin, I took him to where I had left my garment. At this time the children were scattered around the woods, waiting for what the trouble would bring. They all were gathered up and taken to the Sandhill House, examined, and it was found, as I have stated, that their backs were all scarred. Gilbert was brought to trial, severely whipped, and they made him beg all the children to pardon him for his treatment to them. But he never was allowed to go into the woods with the rest of the children during that season. My Sandhill associates always thanked me for the course I took, which saved them and myself from further punishment by him. Master and Mistress Visiting When Master and Mistress were to visit their little negroes at the Sandhill, the news was either brought by the overseer who resided at the above-named place and went back and forth to the plantation, or by one of the master's house-servants a day ahead. The preparation required to receive our white guests was that each little negro was to be washed and clad in the best dress he or she had. But before this was done, 
The unsuccessful attempt was made to straighten out our unruly wools with some small cards, or Jim Crows, as we called them. On one occasion an old lady, by the name of Janie Cutterin, attempted to straighten out my wool with one of those Jim Crows. As she hitched the teeth of the instrument to my unyielding wool with her great masculine hand, of course I was jerked flat on my back. This was the common fate of most of my associates, whose wools were of the same nature, but with a little water and the strong application of the Jim Crow, the old lady soon combed out my wool into some sort of shape. As our preparations were generally completed, three-quarters of an hour before our guests came, we were placed in line, the boys together and the girls by themselves. We were then drilled in the art of addressing our expected visitors. The boys were required to bend the body forward with the head down, and rest the body on the left foot, and scrape the right foot backward on the ground, while uttering the words, Howdy, Massey and Missy. The girls were required to use the same words, accompanied with a courtesy. But when master and mistress had left, the little African wolves were neglected until the news of their next visit. Our sandhill days were very pleasant, outside of the seldom-changed diet, namely the mush, which we had sometimes to eat with molasses, the treatment of Gilbert, and the attempt to straighten out our unruly wolves. I said that my father was brought from Africa when but a boy, and was sold to old Colonel Dick Singleton, and when the children were of age, the colonel divided his plantation among them, and father fell to Colonel M. K. Singleton, who was the second son. On this large plantation there were 465 slaves. There were not so many when it was given to Colonel M. R., but increased to the above-stated number up to the time of emancipation. My father was not a field hand. My first recollection of him was that he used to take care of hogs and cows in the swamp, and when too old for that work, he was sent to the plantation to take care of horses and mules, as master had a great many for the use of his farm. I have stated that father said that his father's name, in Africa, was Moncoso, and his mother's Mongomo, but I never learned what name he went by before he was brought to this country. I only know that he stated that Colonel Dick Singleton gave him the name of William, by which he was known up to the day of his death. Father had a surname, Stroyer, which he could not use in public, as the surname Stroyer would be against the law. He was known only by the name William Singleton, because that was his master's name. So the title Stroyer was forbidden him, and could only be used by his children after the emancipation of the slaves. There were two reasons given by the slaveholders why they did not allow a slave to use his own name, but rather that of his master. The first was that, if he ran away, he would not be so easily detected by using his own name as by that of his master. The second was that to allow him to use his own name would be sharing an honor which was due only to his master, and that would be too much for a negro, they said, who was nothing more than a servant. So it was held a crime for a slave to be caught using his own name, a crime which would expose him to severe punishment. But thanks be to God those days have passed, and we now live under the sun of liberty. End of section one. Recording by Jeffrey Carr, Chicago.